Well, this is Field Notes. Yes, it is. We're in a bar. <laughs> Mount Vernon, the Mount Vernon Tap. Yes, we are. Who's talking with us, Michael? We have uh, Chelsea Zeigler with us, who's the ag water quality specialist, and then you have a farmer here from your region. Right? Yeah, Mark Keller from Keller Crest Dairies. Keller Crest Dairy, right? Keller Crest Holsteins. Keller Crest Holsteins, excuse me. And uh, we're here to talk about uh, soil test phosphorus in a project that Mark was involved in. Uh, trying to draw, working with farmers, giving a flexible program for farmers to work on drying down phosphorus from, uh, from their watersheds. All right, so in Wisconsin, uh, phosphorus is a pollutant in a sense to our freshwater systems because it's just a limiting nutrient. We don't have that much of it, so when we add all this additional phosphorus through you know, importing a feed, um, it really causes a big spike in growth in, in these aquatic ecosystems that kind of makes them go crazy and has some negative water quality impacts. So uh, when you ask me to do this podcast, it's not very fun to have a farmer. Farmers don't want to talk about phosphorus that often. Um, but I'm phosphorus is a pollutant when it's not used correctly. Right, right, right. When it when it leaves the farm, when yeah. it's used correctly, it's a necessity to grow crops. Right, absolutely. And it is a natural, you know, uh, element in in our systems. I was excited to have Mark here because two things. I always uh, think about this project because Mark talks about the drawdown of soil test phosphorus, and that really sticks in my mind um, because. It's an important risk factor of every field's um, contribution to water quality. And because whenever I read about the project, I see Mark's cute corgis on the farm, and that makes me smile too. So um, in Wisconsin, we lose phosphorus through two major pathways, through erosion, which is what we conventionally think about. Um, a lot of our conservation practices have been about con controlling erosion, and Mark is in the drift list, so he knows a lot about that. Um, and the other less talked about one is dissolved phosphorus, which as the water quality science has evolved, we've learned it's more of a problem. So that's when you have water leaving the field without soil, but it can still contain phosphorus. So um, even when you see clean, you know, clear water running a field, running off a field, that doesn't mean there's no phosphorus in it. And um, kind of similar to that impact in urban ecosystems of leaves, the same thing can happen in agricultural fields. So soil test phosphorus is related to both of those because if you're losing the soil particle, the amount of phosphorus to it would would impact that and then um, dissolved phosphorus is more common in frozen grounds when the ground is frozen so it's hard to have soil erosion um, but that soil and that residue and any fertility on the surface can release a little bit of that dissolved phosphorus so drawing down you know that bank that we just talked about um, is an important management strategy you want to dive into a little bit, talk with Mark a little bit about the project that uh, you were involved in, Mark, and how it went, and kind of a little bit of the history of it, and why you got involved in it in the first place? Yeah, the project basically goes back, I think it was around 2007, when Dane County Extension first came to us, talking about we were one of the higher phosphorus soil test farms in Dane County. And that's from years of spreading manure, buying commercial fertilizer, just trying to grow good crops, doing the common practices that were done on farms. Um, 
and typically it was closer to the building since that's where they put the manure. Farther away it was always lower. Um, but they wanted to work with farmers that, had, dairy farmers in particular, that had the higher phosphorus levels. And a big part of it was what they call the Pleasant Valley Watershed Project, which ended up being a, a coalition of a number of different organizations, including the Nature Conservancy. So I got to know Steve Richter with the Nature Conservancy yeah. quite, quite well. But DNR, EPA, uh, county, state, feds were all involved in this. But it is kind of the program that predated all the farmer-led watershed groups that are going on today. And a big part of it was trying to find 10 different organizations working together with farmers to try to combat the higher phosphorus and hopefully get some different practices in place to try to control the runoff. And it was primarily the Gordon Creek, which is part of the Pecatonica Creek River system. Um, that they were trying to target. Okay. Then there's a control group that was born in Iowa County. So you had your check, which was in Iowa County, then the, the actual project was in southwest part of Dane County, which is part of the Driftless area, which is also an area that is a trout stream. Um, so they set up uh, land and water, basically had a testing station, not too far from the farm, but it was down, downstream. And they were able to test everything and find out what their base levels were. And over a number of years, we're able to plot and see what were the numbers in the river. Farms like us, we were always contour farming. So we had conservation already in place on the farm. But could we find some ways to enhance it with other things? One of the things I came up with, based off of watching some other people, some early inventors, early adapters, using winter rye as a cover crop, yeah. and using it for a full term for forage for feed and efforts. So for us, it actually worked as a, a benefit for feeding cattle, since we were short acres and needed all the feed we could. Right. So we adapted going to winter rye, in the meantime, we also bought a new corn planter. We were doing a lot of, at that time, was like 38 inch rows with a four row planter. Yeah. We would double up the planting so we could get more like 19 inch row corn to try to optimize tonnage for corn silage. Yeah. The new planter we bought was actually a six row with inner plants. So it was already set up for a flat 15 inch row corn. Exactly. Or you could do the standard 30 inch. Right. Got saved or saved a lot of time. But it was also set up as a no-till heavy duty planner. planner okay. So we could adapt more no-till practices into our operation. So with the Pleasant Valley project, we did adapt the no-till planting corn as much as we could, along with using winter rye as a cover crop and feeding the cow. And before this, you were doing conventional tillage. A lot of conventional tillage, chisel plow in the fall, okay. work the ground in the spring. Um, now, the nice thing about what we were doing, the chisel plowing stuff, like, everything's still done on a contour. Yeah. We were one of the first farms in Bay County 60 years ago to get contour farm. Okay. So there's a long history of conservation. Yeah. I'm 58. Yeah. So my whole life, I always knew what contour farming was. Right. Working yeah. everything on the contour of the land 
not up and down. So right. we're just trying to find ways to enhance the good things we were doing already. And we have, I think we did succeed in that. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what surprised you when they walked through the inventory with you? Or what was that process like? Because I think they chose, you know, they walked through each field in your farm or... How did that work? No, it wasn't walking through every field. It's more or less what are our practices. Um, and the whole project, I mean, they brought in some university people to talk about the economics. You want to drive a farmer and you tell them what's going to save money and they're checking. Because yeah. we're all trying to save money. We're all trying to utilize everything the best we can. And I mean, they had economists that would talk about how do we do things to actually save money and stuff. Not with the approach just telling, oh, you need to do that, but let's try to find some common ground where we can work with. You talked about a few different practices. You started adopting when kind of all this was happening. I'm curious, is there any practice that stands out to you that you think maybe does the most for take, uh, mitigating soil phosphorus losses or one that stands out as a better return on investment than others? I know you talked about contour farming. You've always done that. But. Yeah. The contour farming, that's always part of it. I don't care how you plant. You need to plant on the contour. Even the no-till guys, you got to plant on the contour. The ones that drive up and down a hill and stuff like that, that drives me nuts. And I've, there's still people that do that. Because yep. your, your roads are open, you're just going to have the water wash right down the drain. Um, but probably the biggest thing that probably impacted us is probably the winter ride is a cover crop. Yeah. That soil is not going anywhere. Yeah. You're holding that soil in place. I I could remember as a kid seeing some fields with the building washers and yeah. things wash off. I don't see that anymore. Yeah. And are you just playing the winter rye after corn silage? Typically it's after corn silage. Now, the last couple of years, we've also enhanced more things with spring barley as a cover crop, where I, I only need about 50 acres of winter rye. So the other acres, we have enhanced more things now over the last few years, partially with our work with Farmers for the Upper Sugar River, which I am a, we as a farmer are members of that. Um, so utilizing some spring barley is another straight up cover crop. Okay, you're not taking that before it. We're not, no. That'll actually die out over the winter, so the purpose is just to try to hold the soil yeah. in place over the winter time. So springtime comes, I just no-till right into it gotcha. uh, without disturbing the soil. So the no-till is probably the second thing I think that yeah. really yeah. enhance things a lot. Third thing we did on phosphorus, because the soil tests were high, we stopped buying phosphorus. Yeah. Went cold turkey on it. I think it was 2009, I'm gonna say, milk prices crash big time. The checkbooks suck. Yeah. We didn't have the extra money. So what can we do to save money? Let's try eliminating the phosphorus. Didn't see any yield drops. Basically yeah. switched to more of a urea potash mix. So we're at least concentrating on making sure you get the nitrogen. And potash is the other thing because we go a lot of alpha. Right. That gets drawn down. Right. Phosphorus, we still have manure as our source right. for phosphorus. Nice thing about it, at the time we went to a tank, you got cab tractors, 
we could get to every corner of the farm now. Gotcha. Not like the old days where you had an open tractor, 30 below zero out there, wind chills. You were trying to get out and back as quick as possible because you're an open tractor freezing your butt off. And it was those fields closest to the barn. Like yes, the that's why you had the phosphorus higher levels, right. closer to buildings. Over history of time, you know, 50 years ago, there was no such thing as cap tractors. Right. You might have had a tractor that had a windbreak on, but that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You still froze. <laughs> I'm gonna get myself in hot water because Michael's the nutrient management planning specialist. But right, so when your fields are in excessively high categories or even high, you're very unlikely to see a yield response to additional phosphorus, right? Yeah. Typically, when you get in that excessively high range, you're thinking more about drawing soil phosphorus down. So, phosphorus in Wisconsin typically isn't something that we think about as a real limiting nutrient because of the history of livestock and dairy in Wisconsin having that manure applied uh, on fields. I wanted to hit on the rye a little bit, right? It's it's providing physical protection of the soil and erosion. And then by removing that forage, you're removing more phosphorus from those fields. Um, and you mentioned that changed how you bought fertility. Did it change how you spread manure? Or I guess I'm curious, like, what that did it help with your nutrient management planning? Were you scared? Like, what would you tell people about that process? We've been daily haul for manure, so we do not have storage for manure on the farm. Yeah. By doing what we did, I actually kind of open up some different windows to spread manure year-round in wider windows. The neat thing was where we had to rise, some of it we needed to plant fairly quick, but some of it we would delay because what we're doing is utilizing the rye as long as we could for fields. Then we would delay planting and that would be our late corn silage where we actually would chop two different times once normal process. But then we would have some later stuff where we refill would be our transition corn silage for the cattle. It also helps to spread out the labor so you're not rushing all at Correct. once to fill all the... Correct. All the spreads out the labor, spreads out the timetable when you can do things. Because when you daily haul manure, it's got to go every day. Right. It doesn't matter what the weather is. Mm -hmm. And there's, there are advantages to doing that. There's disadvantages too. The one main advantage is on daily haul is even in the middle of the winter time, you're spreading. Yeah. There is freezing thawing action going on. You are getting that manure actually that here, the soil particles. So some of your phosphorus, yes, it can run off, but you're not going to ever have that big plume where you get the problem where you got to empty out a manure pit and you get right. that heavy rain that comes right afterwards. You're not going to see those kinds of things. You're always going to have a little bit of and nature can tolerate a certain amount right. within reason, of course. Did you, did you do anything like, I know you're removing phosphorus with the rye, uh, did you place corn silage rotations where there were higher soil, soil test phosphorus yes. to draw it down also? Traditionally, and you talked phosphorus and stuff like that, one of the farms that we ended up renting a number of years ago was a five phosphorus. That's nothing. That I mean that needs phosphorus just to grow back. So we were able to concentrate more and more over in those directions, so they got pull away from the real high fields. And traditionally, the corn silage, we were probably keeping a little closer to home where the phosphorus is higher to try to pull down. And the neat thing is, first time we soil sampled after doing this a number of years, really didn't change a lot. But the next cycle, three, four years later, when we did soil test, it had a nice drop. 
by time the third time we did the soil test, we actually saw about a 40% decrease on the three main farms that were extremely high on phosphorus, which is also the 40% decrease we had is what they found with the Pleasant Valley Project with the phosphorus in the Pleasant Valley Project. So in the, in the, in the water source yes. as well? Yes, so the river itself had a 40% decrease. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a testament to the fact that you're not going to see results immediately. It's like when folks try cover crops the first time, they expect it, you know, they're going to get an immediate boost of yeah. organic matter or whatever. It is. I know it when, we did, when we did the soil test that first time afterwards, I've been doing this for about four years, and it really didn't change much. Yeah. So I was kind of frustrated. It's like, why aren't I pulling it down a little faster? You're pulling great crops off. Right. So you know you got to be pulling it down. But different people told me the phosphorus is still probably going to be the last thing okay. you're going to see drop. Make it so tightly packed. Well, and it's just like the soil has an incredible buffer capacity to replenish the phosphorus that's going to be plant available. So soil test phosphorus is only a portion of the soil's total phosphorus. And I think it's something like a corn silo, a heavy, a high yield crop like corn silage or alfalfa only removes like four ppm of phosphorus a year or something. So. Takes a while to draw it down. So that success of cropping and harvesting really helps to draw that down even more. Faster. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious about if your the way that you manage winter rye has changed in the interim since you started this project, started putting it in. If the seeding rate has changed or if your general approach has shifted at all. Seeding rates pretty much stay consistent. We were basically hundred pounds to 110 pounds okay. per acre. So pretty heavy. What, that's what you want when you're using it for a fork. Right, yeah. If you're just using it as a straight cover crop, you're probably going to do half that. Yeah. So we're actually after as much tonnage as we can on the field. Right. Make it worth the time for one thing. Yeah, yeah. But you're trying you're trying to make tonnage up to feed the cattle. Yeah. Since then, since we started originally, we are just doing it for heifers. Since then, the UW did some research on Okay, you're at 100 pounds of milk. How do you get that next pound of milk? Yeah. Without totally changing things. A lot of times, because we have real high quality alfalfa, we're actually throwing in some wheat straw in the diet and try to slow things down. Okay. We switched from buying wheat straw to utilizing the winter rye as a feed for the lactating cows. And as fairly recently, we've been up to work works 110 pounds of cow. So I think it's been successful utilizing it. Now, I don't have enough winter rye to last the full year. So part of the year, I do have to utilize some straw yet. Right. But when I am feeding winter rye, I do see a production increase. The nice thing about winter rye, it does have the NDF factors right. that you're looking for to help slow down things in the passage, uh -huh. but it's very digestible. Yeah. Wheat straw has the high NDF, but it's not digestible for the cow. Right. So they really can't utilize the nutrients of it uh, with the rye you can. Yeah. So you mentioned that you that you don't have enough winter rye to go around for feeding, and that you're doing some spring barley. So why don't you plant more winter rye? Why don't you extend that? A lot of it's the storage. Yeah. Okay. And trying to utilize the bunkers for different things too. Gotcha. I mean, there's a lot of this you got to plant so much ahead. Where you go in winter? Right. People say, why do you not have manure on that field all winter or something like that? That field's close to the road. When it gets springtime, when you do get those big rains and spools, I have stuff where I got heavy residue close to the road, so I'm not disturbing soil. A lot of it's all planned ahead of time. Yeah. 
I'm curious, do you typically apply manure before planting rye or after? Have you experimented with that, like yes. on top of? Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, typically, I try to do it before planting. Once, once you get it planted and it's not germinated, because I want to use it for a forage, I don't want to disturb it. Yeah. The barley, spring barley and stuff like that, once you get that established, go ahead, throw some out there. Yeah. So you have different fields you can do different things with. Once we harvest the winter rye, before I plant corn and do the double crop, yes, I try to get another coat out there because I still have a couple weeks or even a month, month and a half time frame where I can get some manure on those acres and try to replenish the nutrients. Statistically wise, if you just do corn on a winter rye double crop, your tonnage is down. Doing our system, a lot of times, my, like example this year, my late corn silage is probably going to be selling my best corn. Really? Because of the timing of the rains and summer. Right, yeah, yeah. And the last 30 acres we did to fill the, refill the bunker, that corn absolutely looks gorgeous right now. And that was my question. Like, I don't want to shift gears too much away from phosphorus because that's like what we're talking about today. But a lot of people, when they do winter rye or winter cereal, take it off the porch, they see a dip in their corn silage yields afterwards yeah. just because that, you know, end high up that you see you know you're taking a lot of it as forage but there's still those roots decomposing and everything like that that can take up some of that end. so have you seen that in your experience or? it depends on the timing when you do it you know, yeah. a lot of this is basically delayed on the last 30 acres that was probably almost a month and a half after that was harvested oh really wow okay so i didn't replant that till late june Whoa. partially it was drier than heck it yeah was, why even bother planting? It's not going to germinate until you got some rain. Yeah. So towards the end of June, we're actually talking a little shot of rain coming. So I went out and planted it, sprayed it. Got a half an inch of rain, got it germinated. Then the 5th of July, actually got another inch. We were off and going there. So the rest of the summer, up until just recently, we actually been in some fairly steady, good timing yeah. rains. And it actually has straightened out very well. You mentioned some of the outcomes of like quality and like having extra forage and things like that, but have you ever put like numbers on the economic outcomes of some of the practice changes? And not that we would need those numbers, but just like, you know, like ballparks of like what that has meant for your farm. I think in the original time, when you read some of the articles that were written up on the phosphorus, Initially, we were figuring we were saving about $18,000 a year on purchasing fertilizer just on the phosphorus. Today's economics with phosphorus has done the last few years. That is one of your most expensive fertilizers to buy. You could easily double that number. So right now, we're probably in excess saving about $40,000 a year just on not purchasing phosphorus. Yeah. And you typically... Would you say you reinvested that money back into your farm or just used oh, yeah. it to increase profits? Well, with or the economics and everything. things like that, dairy farming, I mean, everything's so tight. Yeah. yeah. You know, we just came through July milk prices that were prices that go back to 1983. Yeah. 1983, it was $13 something for milk price, which wasn't bad money in 1983. Right, right. yeah. But in 2023, it sucks. That's not going to cut it. Yeah. It's not going to cut it. When you break even price for right now, most dairy farms in Wisconsin is between $21 to $22. Yeah. A price for 100 weight for milk is considered break even. 
and the base price is thirteen dollars eighty cents for July. So you need to try to find ways to save money, and the phosphorus was a good way for us. Yeah, absolutely. And that money basically, you know, yes, it is being reinvested in the farm, uh, saving, so you could spend that money on other things. Yeah. So I think we'll, we'll switch gears a little bit and dive a little bit more into what we've heard about Mark's story and uh, involvement in the Pleasant Valley Project um, and kind of the application of drawing phosphorus down in our soils. But, you know, there's also the background knowledge of the pathways in which we lose phosphorus that, you know, it's not just soil loss, as we mentioned earlier, but there's certain kinds of years that um, you lose more dissolved pea than particulate pea. Um, and you know who better to talk about that than Chelsea? <laughs> yeah, my bread and butter. Your bread and butter. Yeah. So let's hear the spiel. Great. Okay. So we typically lose the majority of our phosphorus in the winter and spring, right? No surprise. We don't have a growing crop actively taking up phosphorus a lot of the time, so we're in a kind of a vulnerable situation. So. Um, Discovery Farms, Edgefield Monitoring, and Edgefield Monitoring from other states have really indicated um, we lose most of our particulate phosphorus, so right, that's erosion. A little bit later than I think people normally think of. May and June is when that really peaks, and that has to do with maybe we prepped our soil for seeding and we've loosened things up. We're also getting heavier thunderstorms before we have crop canopy. So making sure we have cover crop residue or, or other crop residue to last until May and June is vital for that soil erosion. Um, about 50% of the phosphorus loss is in the dissolved form, and that kind of peaks in uh, February and March. And that's typically when we have snow melts um, and rain on snow, which can cause a lot of water movement, and our soils are still frozen. So they're kind of held steady, but we're still seeing water pick up any fall fertility we applied. It can even react with the crop residue or some uh, winter-killed cover crops to, you know, to move some of that dissolved phosphorus around. So each field has kind of an individual, you know, maybe a sloped field is more likely to lose it, lose phosphorus via soil erosion, and maybe like a flat, heavier clay soil that holds a lot of pea is more likely to lose it in the dissolved form. But we can kind of, I think we're ready in Wisconsin to take some next steps on these really minor losses that are, that are still contributing. Yeah, absolutely. And everything you're talking about too is just uh, really the principles and reasoning behind what comes up in a nutrient management plan when you actually sit down with your soil tests and your field data and you do that and you recognize some of these layers that exist like uh, fields that are sloped, you know, 6% or greater and why those are more winter manure restricted than like a flat area. Uh, and so just paying attention to those things like Yes, like you mentioned, snow melt events, uh, rainfall events, you know, especially if you don't have any cover out there. And if you've you know, added manure to that frozen soil in any way, uh, that makes it really high risk for phosphorus losses, which is why that's reflected in a nutrient management plan then when you make that plan, those restrictions show up on uh, where you could be targeting your manure that would mitigate any of those losses, especially winter manure applications, which can be a difficult thing. But, yeah. yeah, I'll just embarrass myself 
how nerdy it was. I was like looking at the P phosphorus index equations today on, on the SNAP Plus website. But like that's why I get really jazzed about soil test phosphorus is because it's already a tool we use agronomically. So most farmers know the value. Um, and it goes into a lot of the phosphorus index equations. So there are other things, of course, like slope and weather and soil type, but those are much more difficult to change. And I think sometimes we envision, you know, conservation as these like really lofty, big changes you have to make, but I feel like maybe soil test phosphorus drawdown is a little more digestible. Yeah, uh, and I think about too, like we talk about phosphorus loss, I think a lot of people turn off right away, especially you know, if you hear that conservation word, it's kind of a buzzword sometimes where it's like, you know, yes, it's about protecting things like surface water quality and, you know, all of that stuff. But is there a way, too, that we can reframe this kind of like Marcus on his farm where, yes, it's about all of those things, but sustainability is also about economics and profitability where when we're putting that manure application out there or when we're putting the commercial uh, phosphorus fertilizer application out there, we're investing in something that should be helping us to grow better crops on our farm. Which is the way and, a lot of things I look at. Yeah, and it wouldn't make sense to, for example, put cash into a leaky bank account, even though, I mean, people that are in relationships and things like that might recognize what that feels like. Uh, but on a field scale, it doesn't really make sense where, uh, you know, you're putting this investment which is often a massive investment for farms uh, and then if you're you know setting it up for loss you know been, been a lot of stories lately what is the value of manure yeah and it actually is economics it's value there's a lot of value to it's it. huge yeah so when it does go down a river that is money you're losing and i don't want to lose anything right because of the economics is so tight your ability to make money farming is tight, tighter today than it ever was. So you need to be smart about it. And none of us want to see money going down the river. Yeah, it's it's a farm profitability issue. And then if it does go down the river in Wisconsin, phosphorus typically, not always, but typically would be the most limiting nutrient for things like algae blooms and things like that. And that's kind of what affects the surface water quality thing. but. But yeah, one of the important things to always remember, I think, is think about that phosphorus sort of as a dollar bill when it's going out. Yeah, I really like that financial analogy. I think in the past, you know, there's been a lot of outreach, even from extension. I'm like, oh, keep it in your, if you make sure it has contact with your soil, it's like safe in the bank. And we just know that's not as much the case anymore. Yeah, so. yeah. Cool. So we talked a lot about phosphorus. If you are listening and you are interested in get, looking at phosphorus on your farm, um, the Ag Water Program is having a soil test phosphorus survey where we'll sample, soil sample three fields on your farm to zero to six inches, which is a routine, and also zero to one inch because that one inch uh, is what's interacting with the water most to look at the difference in phosphorus levels and look how um, management practice or practices are impacting that. So if you're interested and want to collaborate, um, check out the link. Alrighty. Uh, well, phosphorus, uh, it's a nuanced topic. We didn't cover it all, but I think we got a nice start on it. Thanks to Mark for sharing his story with us and his experience with trying to draw down phosphorus on his farm and the economic successes he's had there and Chelsea with their 
vast knowledge of the different pathways of loss that we see with phosphorus. Thank you to Renee at the Mount Vernon Tap for providing us with double A batteries and microphones <laughs> to cut down some of the noise here, but it's boisterous, loud uh, here at the Mount Vernon Tap. Uh, but thanks for joining us and thanks for uh, coming on and spending some time with us. Thank you. Check, please. <laughs>